they will uh, you know uh, face the heat island effect very much because one their own houses are made up of usually tin sheet or ac sheet roofing which ensures that uh, you know the temperature inside the house is almost 5 to 6 degrees higher than what it is outside Hi my name is Vivek Bhambar and I am the director of Mahima Housing Trust and you are listening to Understanding the Future podcast Hello everyone I am Punit Gandhi Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities at the National Institute of Urban Affairs and welcome to the season 3 of Understanding the Future podcast I have been working and studying in the field of sustainability and climate change for more than 8 years and I have realized that I have a lot of questions on how we can build cities in India that are more climate focused with understanding the future podcast I interact with experts entrepreneurs and government officials to understand what it takes to bring all the different solutions to the ground as well as how can systemic changes be developed on ground We will further anchor all the topics being discussed with different skill sets required. This will help us understand the future of cities and future of work in Indian context. If you are tuning in for the first time, do check out our previous episodes. Also, don't forget to check out the Climate Practitioners India Network, a members-led solutions-oriented platform for climate practitioners across India. And join it through the show notes. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm your host Punit Gandhi, and today we have with us Ms. Bijal Gambar. She is the director at the Maila Housing Seva Trust. She will help us understand about urban poverty and climate resilience. Welcome to the show, Bijal. Thank you. So, uh, so while we are diving down into the topic, uh, let's first try to you know unfold what do we exactly mean by urban poverty? What are we looking at uh, when we specify that uh, about urban poverty to me urban poverty is something that manifests mostly in the form of slums so it's very visual and you see this big uh, informal urban settlements uh, you know which show in the form of slums where you do not have uh, you know access to services like water or sanitation uh, where you have a social and political marginalization uh your quality of life is worse communities are unsafe um and they're uh, looking at covid very recently more prone to pandemic because they are extremely dense uh, uh and they uh, you know they are not hygienic uh, and then of course for uh, women you know there is this uh, dual burden of the care i think the uh, the biggest manifestation of urban poverty is in the form of uh, urban informal settlements which are slum yeah. okay and uh, if we are, if we are trying to then segregate it from the larger perspective of uh, let's also de- uh, define what uh, or let's also give a context not define but uh, give a context of when we are looking at poverty in india uh, in general what does that mean and how does it differ when we are looking at it from the urban perspective because uh, those are different kinds of poverty if i am not wrong so i think uh, in general india i would sort of uh, think of rural india because india was still now considered to be uh, predominantly rural uh, uh, i think the way the rural uh, poverty differs from urban poverty is that uh, you know 
rural the quality of life is much better although uh, you know probably the in income levels may be lower as compared to uh, urban areas uh, there is a general comfort the comfort level there is more homogeneous communities living socially um, communities are very close knit as compared to uh, urban areas and although uh, dwellings and residences in rural areas may be kacha you know essentially as we call them Uh, it may be semi pakka in the urban uh, but the quality of life is much harsher so uh, it's much denser in the urban it's much more hot because of steam sheets and uh, you know ac cement sheets that we keep using in the informal slums you are more yep. prone to uh, you know evictions um, uh, by, by the uh, government and by the uh, private sector uh no access to services although you may not have access to services in rural however uh, you know the environment is much better quality of air is much better as compared to what it is in the cities nowadays so you know urban india uh, may give you a marginal increase or opportunity of income security however the quality of life is much much harsher in urban india as compared to uh, rural india primarily because of uh, uh, you know lack of access to land and housing okay and yeah uh, that that's true uh, but again uh, i think somewhere down the line we also realize that urbanization is now increasing quite a lot and that also means it's uh, more and more people are coming from rural areas to urban areas and how does that uh, kind of uh, you know what are the opportunities that they are looking at while they are shifting here what are the things that attracts them to this side uh to come to the urban area to make sure that they can make their life here because i do understand that uh, it is much more difficult here uh, in terms of quality of life uh, but i'm sure that they also have certain uh, needs that they are looking and they give that a bit of more priority i think there is some sense of more comfort level with income like uh, incomes uh, you know probably uh, more opportunities of finding jobs or businesses small businesses um the second thing is that it is definitely aspirational uh, because it sort of pulls you out of your comfort zone when you are in in the rural close to your family very close knit communities and here uh, you are much more exposed to the world to probably uh, more opportunities uh, and and that really pulls you out of your comfort zone but at the same time uh, it will uh, you know uh, give you more opportunities in terms of income generation and uh, probably also it is much more aspirational as compared to rural yeah okay and uh, so when they come out of uh, the rural area and uh, they are picking up jobs over here uh what kind of different roles do they take up what kind of different jobs do they generally get in? so uh i'm sure there are multitudes of those jobs but if you can highlight certain major jobs that so i think uh, probably it's more for the informal sector and the poor who uh, you know come to the uh, urban areas they are working more in the informal economy and when i say informal economy it's an economy where you don't have a fixed employer employee relationship yeah uh, so this is basically um, who are who are working uh, in industries in in factories so as as primarily as daily wage workers uh, uh, you know uh, and people become vendors uh, they become producers small 
small, very small manufacturing, uh, you know, uh, production, uh, home-based production that happens in your house. They also are, many of um, them, especially women, become home-based workers. They also become service providers like, uh, for example, uh, you know, hand cart pullers or head loaders or uh, construction workers are all people uh, that provide their services. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, so primarily those kinds of jobs. So I think uh, essentially based on our experience, we have classified them into four categories, yeah. uh, which is service providers, as I mentioned, vendors, um, home-based workers, producers, yeah, daily wage earners, yeah. Okay, that uh, that does make sense. That broadly does help us in classifying uh, how uh, do their work styles now change over here. Because I'm assuming from rural when they are coming, either they would be employed in some form of industry or they were in agriculture at that point. Uh, and this is how they are shifting to towards over here. Uh, with uh, and do we have some kind of information also on the lines or some kind of studies that? Uh, would be part of or uh, have a read into which uh, helps us understand where uh, what is or is it generally the male or the female or how does the movement happen from rural to urban because that is something I feel uh, just because the male in the family is coming to the urban the whole family shifts or they try to send back money back home or how does that function so I'm a practitioner and yeah. I have not read, read any studies that really actually unpack uh, uh, the, the you know, process of, yeah. or at least the features of migration. But whatever yeah. I, un I have understood from my practice on the ground is that, yeah. uh, you know, uh, there are usually uh, migrants uh, who, mostly males initially, who, who come to cities uh, and, you know, in search of jobs and they would essentially rely on their own community networks. So, for example, in, in a city like Surat, where you have a lot of migrants, you will find specific areas where there will be migrants from Bihar and some specific areas where there will be migrants from UP and then others from Maharashtra. So, basically using their community networks, other males who have already migrated, uh, they would, uh, you know, come here in search of uh, of jobs of work and choose to stay with uh, within their community networks in you know like um, slums uh, single room slum households where a lot of six ten eight people reside together sharing the costs initially just so that uh, you know uh, the burden economic burden is much lesser before they start actually earning and contributing yeah. the, to their families I think for on an average for six, eight, uh, six to eight years, they keep, uh, you know, sending money back home after running and, uh, you know, sp spend, spend significant time going back home. Now, slowly over a period of time after six to eight years, that starts changing, you know, uh, uh, males get married. They then would like to bring their female folk uh, back to where they are staying in the cities. And that's when they would actually start finding uh, housing, which is, uh, uh, you know, separate from, um, like group, what we call usually group housing. And then they would start, you know, uh, establishing themselves and then going for their uh, identity and their credentials in urban areas, like getting an Aadhaar card from the urban address or, uh, you know, uh, 
probably social security like uh, you know the public distribu distribution system card etc then slowly starts uh, you know becoming urban uh, yeah. but i think on an average almost a period of 8 to 10 years before that okay. happens okay that, and that's but sometimes uh, sometimes we have also seen and what has emerged actually as a feature of uh, uh, feature of rural india that i was unaware of very recently we started working with homeless in the city of Ahmedabad where we are headquartered and uh, we have done a research study with them and we understood that some migration uh, you know um, very less percentage yeah. happens due to the uh, you know caste and class politics in the rural areas so there are families who have absolutely fled the rural areas just because of uh, you know the higher class thakurs or uh, yeah. you know kshatriyas actually oppressing them okay. uh, you know to the extent that they have to flee the rural areas to uh, ensure that they are able to live so some of the very recent homeless have started emerging uh, like this and then they uh, you know just sort of migrate with families and stay here on payments essentially initially uh, so that that's quite an interesting i think uh, <laughs> It would be very difficult for study to find such kind of anecdotes as well, or such kind of uh, trends to figure out this is uh, over a given period of time. Uh, but so when now the female uh, population is also coming out, uh, does it become generally much more on the lines that they are also the bread earners now, and uh, or do they? Custom more towards uh, staying at home and making sure everything is alert. Initially, what I have seen in, in, in migrants, uh, very new migrants, very new female migrants, uh, especially from some of the uh, backward states like Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, and Odisha, uh, women do work because poverty compels them to work. So yeah. it's mostly the poor women who are working always. But then they use their house as their workplace. So they will undertake economic activities which are basically out of their house. So, uh, you know, economic activities like kite making, for example, or okay. mala making, or, uh, you know, stitching, hmm. or rolling biddies in the case of uh, Madhya Pradesh, uh, states like Madhya Pradesh. Essentially, yeah. they start with those kind of activities or probably also doing a lot of the back-end jobs supporting their husbands for example if, if you uh, if there is a pani puri wala all the production mm. of the uh, you know the food that goes into uh, food articles yeah. into the pani puri is done by their wives at home but okay. it's all unpaid then uh, and yeah. goes unnoticed and most of the time the women are also not aware that they have a economic role to play because they consider yeah. 9 to 6 or 10 to 5, uh, you know, salaried jobs as jobs. So when you talk to them, they won't say that they are working or contributing economically into the families. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this this absolutely uh, is something that unpaid labor is quite a big thing, uh, I feel, on oh, this whole sector as well. Uh, what uh, any experience or any examples which you can give, which has actually shown up uh, something on these lines that how they were able to understand more about that their work is also more uh, fruitful to their whole economic uh, condition? There are so many, I mean, it is a trend, so it's not yeah. one of incident. So usually yeah. when we go into areas like Surat, which are very heavily migrant, 
uh, and there are families which have uh, you know women uh, who have recently migrated uh, we just go out and ask them because one of our uh, trust also is to work with poor women who are economically active uh, yes. so we just go out and talk to them and when you, the first question you ask them uh, is is are they working and, and and the answer obviously would be no and while they are still talking to us they are doing something which is you know either they are threading a mala or they are uh, you know sort of uh, tying a lace or stitching a garment but they would still say that uh, they are not working so then we will have to slowly talk to them take some time out and make them realize you know um, sort of prod them to be able to get them to say that uh, they are working and uh, uh, they are contributing and although they may earn because their income is basically uh, not um well it's not that constant it's not on a fixed yeah. basis so they may earn in a week they may earn in a day they may not, i mean then uh, get paid in a month because it's based on uh, you know uh, how and when uh, your employer actually collects the finished goods uh, from you from yeah. the home because all home based workers will have a middleman who gives them the raw material and comes and collects the finished goods and they will not actually see the main employer so yeah. uh, uh, it takes real uh, you know some time uh, like half an hour of conversation before even they would acknowledge that they contribute something to the economy of their households okay okay yeah and i think that's that's quite a task for them to also realize uh, this whole process uh but so now when we come to the climate aspect of this whole urbanization uh how are uh, the people in slums or people who are more marginalized affected by the growing challenges of climate change uh, what are some of the things that have been noticed on the ground so obviously because you are poor and uh, you know slums are the solutions that you find because uh, you know slums are places where no one else uh, who has uh, uh, you know a uh, uh, good amount of moderate amount of income would choose to stay uh, uh, they are they come at a price which is affordable to the poorest of poor so basically they are on all topographically vulnerable areas mostly low lying areas and so these areas uh, usually get flooded very easily adverse heat by cyclones because of the way they are lying in so for example if you are traveling in a, in a train most of the time you will see that as the station railway station approaches near the railway line you will always see uh, you know the slums yeah. uh, lined up and now the reason the slums come up there is you know uh, by law you are supposed to keep a certain uh distance between the railway track uh, uh and yeah. before you can actually start staying or have some construction in those that area is hazardous completely because the train uh, you know is passing by and you do not maintain the distance but that's a no man's land in some sense because nobody will come and evict you because you are staying so in so much proximity to the railway track uh that your lives are really exposed to the dangers and so that's where they will go and stay because that would be available cheapest they would pay a lo- to a local boom who would charge and would allow them to stay there on a land which is not which does not belong to the boom it belongs to the railway uh, but they will pay and they will stay there and just stay there because it comes so cheap that they are exposing their lives uh, or their children uh, to this danger so 
Uh, when climate change actually hits, what happens is that some prominent features of, of, of climate change are now going to be that flooding is going to increase, heat yep. is going to increase in communities across uh, global South India being one of the uh, major countries. So uh, with increased flooding, they will be more prone uh, to disasters. They will, uh, you know, uh, face the heat island effect very much because one, their own houses are made up of usually teen sheet or AC sheet roofing, which ensures that, uh, you know, the temperature inside the house is almost five to six degrees higher than what it is outside. Yeah. And secondly, you also cannot afford cooling uh, solutions like the air conditioners uh, in your houses. Uh, so you are going to be more vulnerable, um, you know, Epidemics and pandemics are going to increase because uh, because of the flooding and the um, unwanted precipitation that we are going to face due to climate change. And yeah. so you will see that uh, you know the uh, nature of uh, sort of illnesses in terms of dengue, chikungunya, malaria are going to increase across the global south. And and slums are going to be the uh, sort of the uh, initial uh, points of genesis from which this will happen because water gets flooded and becomes stagnant in the flood uh, in the slums because of the kind of topography it is. So uh, again, they are going to be more uh, vulnerable um, so far as climate change. So they are they are the communities who actually contribute um, the least but are going to be the most at receiving ends of the effects of climate change. Okay. And uh, so what what are some of the case examples which have helped in, you know, uh, where a built environment, uh, what, what kind of built environment can be developed for uh, this society then, uh, especially the urban poor, that they don't face such kind of uh, challenges? What, what are some of the measures or examples or case studies uh, across the world that have been taken up for the same? So we uh, we have actually been doing quite a lot of things, uh, uh, working on heat uh, resistance, heat adaptation for the poor, for uh, to ensure that uh, you know the settlements do not get flooded, or probably uh, are less prone to vector borne disease, etc. Uh, so poor tend to uh, you know sort of build incrementally much more in their housing. So. By incrementally, I, uh, I know that, uh, you know, they invest once and do like all, then probably invest a second time and then do the roofing. So over a period of time, they will develop their housing, uh, uh, which becomes better over a period. So when they are doing this, how do they use, uh, you know, technologies and materials, which are uh, one, not only aspirational, because they do want it to be aspirational, uh, uh, but at the same time help them. Uh, so it has to be aspirational, it has to be affordable, it has to be user-friendly and accessible to them very easily. So such kind of technologies, for example, we have been promoting cool roofs uh, in, in the... Um, uh, in, in the incremental housing that our members have been doing. Um, then we have also been advising them on passive design. So, yeah. for example, one of the features of our housing, uh, especially in rural areas, used to be that we used to have projections, shading projections in the form mm -hmm. of veranda, which is now 
disappearing in the urban built form um, or even in the slum so that used to actually help to reduce the onset by 1 to 2 degrees so by reviving such features which are low cost uh, yeah. but at the same time support them in decreasing the heat for example uh, you know helping them to understand what a high flood level in their area is and when they invest into their own housing uh, they sort of construct the plinth level um, at um, height that you know even if the area gets flooded the water would not come easily into their houses uh, we do train them to identify larvae uh, of uh, you know malaria or chikungunya and dengue and during the monsoon seasons they conduct specific drives in their areas to identify this larvae because we have trained them scientifically so we have been doing uh, uh, you know doing this um, with the poor um, in the incremental construction on the other hand uh, for the affordable housing and the housing for all program which is being undertaken by the government of india we have been advocating that how the uh, mission uh, takes up housing which is uh, you know uh, less uh, heated uh, looks at the thermal comfort and is much more energy efficient uh, than what they used to build earlier uh, because uh, you know the the government on one hand is on a drive to electrify uh, cities up to 100 percent and uh, you know uh, urban areas also do not have space at the household level to set up renewable energy uh, equipments so that is the challenge but those are some of the issues that <laughs> we have been working uh, with the government okay. also for affordable housing. Okay. Yeah, uh, because I see somewhere, uh, I'm not sure if it's a solution for all, but uh, at least for good amount of people, affordable housing might act as a good way in which uh, a lot of these climate uh, parameters that they are affected by, can, they can also be mitigated. Uh, Surely we will have to still take care of urban heat island because these are going to be concrete buildings, uh, which might be better than clean sheets. But uh, on a large scale, we will have to uh, look at urban heat island as uh, how to solve it. And somewhere again, cool roofs and passive design that uh, you are working on might be helpful to make sure that, okay, uh, these buildings are still more sustainable. and. How is the adoption of that in the community? Uh, how how do you see that adoption coming up? I think it's very well taken, but you need a lot of education. So, and the education is not one time. You have to keep reiterating uh, because ultimately it has to translate to her behavior change, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. I think yeah. also the challenge with the poor, if you may understand, is that they think very short term so climate change yeah. still for them is uh, when we started talking to them was an act of god you know so these untimely precipitations or uh, you know cold waves or heat waves were still an act of god to them so yeah. the first thing that we did was to demystify uh, the science of climate change in a very very simple manner and so we did develop very strong communication uh, material what they tend to think short term uh, because, uh, you know, if you have no resources, uh, money, monetary resources, you always look at your short term needs. So, for example, how will I eat my next meal? How will I, uh, you know, get the fees to educate my child uh, are always the short term needs that they are focused on. So to yeah. get them to think long term and invest in that sense, 
is really really challenging and you have to keep reiterating uh, the education uh, that you undertake along with of course uh, looking at technologies or initiatives that I said can be, uh, you know, so we've come up with four criteria for them to be successful with the poor, as I said. One is that they do have to be aspirational, uh, they have to be affordable, they have to be uh, user-friendly, and yeah. they have to be easily accessible. So those technologies or initiatives uh, will work with the poor. But what really got them in our case invest was the fact that they were very clear that they did not want their children to live the life that they are living currently. Okay. And uh, when they understood that their children are going to become increasingly more and more vulnerable uh, because of uh, climate change and, and lives may be even more, uh, you know worse than what they are living now, uh, that's what really got them interested to learn more about the subject and uh, you know then yeah. uh, started thinking of investing. Okay. And uh, because I, I feel uh, it's also uh, this is where the importance of the whole long term education, long term benefits of everything that they are doing today might come up for them. Uh, and that would be important. Uh, so overall, uh, is there a good amount of retention they see in affordable housing as well? Or because initially I do remember, again, I'm not from this field, so my knowledge might be wrong so they would again give out such affordable houses on rent and everything to make sure that their short-term incomes are derived off and they would move to another place or slum would that scenario still happen or would it uh, not happen always so it really depends on, on the uh, you know the level of urbanization uh, so yeah. if you uh, uh, for example I have seen affordable housing sites where 30% of the people have gone back uh, or rented the houses allocated to them. So a lower percentage would be 30, but yeah. uh, on a bad site, it would, it would go as high as 50%. Mm -hmm. uh, the issue is that we do not have, I have at least not come uh, across a comparable statistics for the middle class or the higher middle class. So you also have the middle class or the higher middle class actually investing into housing and then renting it out so people do yeah. buy housing in the middle class and high middle class for as investments you know uh, yeah. just to make rent income so i do not see uh why it is so being criticized for the poor if they want to utilize it uh, yeah. as a means of as and as an asset building or or a means of income and yeah. what are the rates in the middle and higher class i'm not sure if if i i would see a site which has 30 percent a uh, non-retention to me it's a good sign okay. but if it goes as high as 50 percent probably we do have to think and there have been yeah. uh, odd cases where it is high as 50 percent but there have been cases where it is very very low also okay. to the tune of 25 to 30 percent so this is a very debatable issue okay no no i absolutely get your point because it's, it's eventually uh, as you mentioned that it's uh, it's it's a change in their uh, thought process as well. The behavior change that needs to come in from the long term perspective thinking that they need to bring in. And again, they also have to make their ends meet uh, eventually. That is why uh, they are in this uh, urban area. So, uh, what are the different kinds? Of, so, when we are uh, developing affordable housing, is there any specific financial instruments we are talking about uh, that help them out? Uh, how is how does that help them? And, can you elaborate on that? So 
as I said, you know, the um, maximum amount of housing happens by the poor incrementally. Just to give you a statistics, if you have 10 houses being constructed in India today, two will be from government, one from the private sector for the poor, and, and I think almost uh, seven are being done by the poor themselves incrementally. So the challenge to them in terms of accessing finance is that, you know, one, they usually live on land which they do not have. They may have, they all of them have absolutely bought it and paid for it, but it still legally may not be in their name. So they won't have a legal title uh, and therefore it will be an informal land. And of course, the incomes also quite a lot of them are informal. So you cannot actually uh, get a sense of uh, uh, of their income. And, and uh, you know, then housing loans would become a housing loan for informal tenure and informal income are the most challenging. Uh, okay. uh, ones to be because one they are longer term and second they are also larger size as compared to normal consumer loan. Okay, so and uh, uh, there are uh, how how does they try to get because again affordable housing or housing loans if they are taking up they would get into the cycle of uh, debt or are they able to get out of it easily as well? How are they able to manage that? So they deploy several mechanisms so when uh, usually poor take a housing loan uh, yeah. because it's very hard to come by for them so yeah. what they and because people don't lend so easily to them uh, they uh, deploy a combination of mechanisms so for a single expenditure on housing probably they would have borrowed from their family they would have uh, taken non-loan support from very near family members, they would have sold off their gold, whatever they had, yeah. uh, and then they would have uh, partly taken a loan from a formal formal institution, uh, not very easily available. So various, and then some savings that they have done over a period of time. So um, the money actually comes from uh, various sources uh, and yeah. not a single source. And uh, what they do is many of them I have seen, especially in cities like Surat, um, Bombay would construct, they take it to construct housing on on their, on top of the ground floor housing and then the EMIs they pay by renting out the, uh, you know, upper story uh, to other migrants, new migrants who come into the city. So that's a very, uh, you know, common phenomenon that I have seen. Uh, otherwise, they usually take a loan to improve their own housing and then it doesn't really Pay up, but then uh, you know the amount of debt they they would income incur in terms vis-a-vis the spending that they have actually made is much lower. So they would then find uh, community networks where sort of borrow informally where they don't have to pay interest from their relatives, etc. So and then there is one instrument which is extremely prevalent, uh, which is called a chit fund. Uh, in the slums, despite so much, so many MFIs and, uh, you know, microfinance institutions working for them where, uh, you know, uh, they enroll themselves into chip funds and then they get, uh, uh, you know, a bigger amount uh, every year so that uh, they are able to utilize it for housing. Uh, so coming to a slightly uh, topic on the adjacent side of it, it is not, but uh, I feel somewhere Again, uh, where they are built, transport is something which will also affect them a lot in this whole ecosystem because their work is something might not be at the same spot. And then looking at it from climate's point of view, they are someone who might be able to use uh, 
the public transport infrastructure in a much better way. So how does that whole role play into account and what are some of the challenges or opportunities that uh, uh, people have taken up on these lines? Uh, I would say that the biggest challenge, so we had done a small transport survey with the poor women who we were working with and we were actually working outside of their homes and we understood that they were spending as large as 100 rupees a day in a center like Ahmedabad, forget Bombay or Delhi, to commute to their place of work. And obviously two hours a day to go back and forth. And that used to be a lot of trip chains. So not through a single trip, but, you know, taking a lot of uh, uh, trip chains uh, and, and changing vehicles. And obviously a large part of that also used to be inform informal transport, like shared auto rickshaws and stuff, uh, yes. which were, of course, not very climate friendly. Uh, but that was an uh, an affordable solution at the doorstep and at, at uh, in the timing that was sort of suitable to them. So uh, while they suffered the most and spent the highest, probably uh, they did not care so much about uh, the climatic emissions that the vehicles were actually giving out. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Uh, so any uh, on those lines, I I would also like to get your thoughts on if anything we have particularly missed out uh, before we move to one of the last questions that we do uh, from lens of poverty, climate resilience, housing uh, that the audience should know of? So I think one thing that is very evident to me is this for urban areas vis-a-vis the rural is uh, is the fact that uh, you know citizens' engagement in in urban areas is is very very minimal. So uh, when you talk of rural, we have a very strong panchayati raj system and the the gram sabhas and their structure, uh, where the uh, uh, the poorest of the poor can also actually officially participate, and the participation is easier. But, uh, you know, uh, citizens' engagement for good governance in urban areas is actually very, very tough. Uh, we did have the 74th constitutional amendment uh, in our uh, constitution, uh, which talks of, uh, you know, having areas of hard and board committees at the board level in cities. But uh, nowhere I find, except for one or two wards in Bangalore, uh, it has been uh, operationalized. And Bangalore also very recently started. So uh, citizens don't have a space for engagement with the government in urban areas. Uh, you forget about the poor because uh, even if the educated and the uh, elite and the middle class uh, find it very complex, then poor is it's a completely different story. And that's going to manifest in the way our cities are going to uh, sort of contribute to the problem of climate change or probably become a proliferation of slums, uh, uh, you know, uh, unless and until we ensure that there are good governance, citizen engagement mechanisms established, it's going to be, the challenge is going to be much tougher. That surely uh, makes a lot of sense. So one of the last questions uh, that we do at each end of each episode is on the lines of what are the different skill sets required to, you know, help in this field to make sure that this field can be taken up in a better way for the future. So uh, if you can elaborate something on those lines, that will be of great help to the audience. I think the first and foremost is, is, is the passion to work in the area. So 
I would not say so much of skills, but the passion uh, uh, to sort of uh, continue working in 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 the urban development space, which uh, a lot which asks for a lot of patience, lot of perseverance, and also you know a person would be best able to deliver if you understand the intersections of. Urban development, uh, scaling, climate forward, and then good governance. So you have to understand, you know, um, how these complex subjects intersect, and uh, you know, sort of contribute towards uh, urban development. So I think it's not a single skill set, yeah. but uh, a better understanding of all these intersectional areas, and then of course to have the patience and perseverance to, uh, uh, you know, sort of keep dealing uh, for a long time. It is something that is i think the foremost requirement i do agree i do agree in urban like i have been here only in urban development sector for 3 years and i can see the amount of patience already required to develop anything uh, on policy lines or any kind of uh, recommendations that also needs to come in so i absolutely agree with that uh, thank you so much uh, if i have missed out on anything and uh, you want to cover it we can still go otherwise uh, uh we can end this talk that's fine with me uh, thank you for calling me yeah. my pleasure thank you so much rizal uh, ma'am this was absolutely a pleasure talking to you and get a very good insight on the aspects that uh, about urban poverty and what is the climate resilience for them and how can that be improved upon thank you so much Thank you for tuning into the podcast. Do subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and follow us on all social media channels. For more details about the Climate Center for Cities and registration on Climate Practitioners India Network, click on the link in the show notes. The episode is conceptualized and produced by Punit Gandhi. A big thank you to the whole team at CQ and NIUA for supporting the development of the podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode.